Welcome to Policy Matters. My name is Franz Bouchard. And I'm Matt Dixon. And today we're joined by Neil Davies, Senior Research Fellow at the MRC Integrative Epidemiology Unit at the University of Bristol. Neil is a statistical epidemiologist and much of his work focuses on developing and applying methods for what is known as Mendelian randomization, which uses genetic information to understand the causal effects of certain risk factors for diseases. And like all epidemiologists and indeed other academics, Neil has recently been working on projects related to COVID-19. Welcome, Neil. Hi, everybody. It's great to have you here. Thank you very much. I described you as a statistical epidemiologist, and I think a few months ago we might have asked you first what on earth an epidemiologist is, but I suspect these days most of us have a fairly good idea of what epidemiologists do. But uh, being serious for a moment, uh, epidemiologists are obviously very big and prominent figures in public life these days. Um, I guess my first question to you is, what's, what's your experience been like uh, in the last couple of months since the COVID crisis? What's it been like to be an epidemiologist? Have you had a lot of contact with the media, for example? Uh, not so much contact with the media. Um, most of my work has been focused on the academic and scientific side of things. So I'd probably describe the experience as being a mixture of um, incredibly exciting and incredibly terrifying, because I think as an um, as an academic and as a scientist, you're very acutely aware of what we don't know. So if you roll back to, say, January, February, um, it was quite apparent from a lot of the academic work that there was something big was around the corner and it was potentially going to be catastrophic. Um, and it was kind of unclear how bad it was going to be. Um, and that's quite a terrifying place to be particularly if you know that there's not really very much that we were going to be able to do to stop this. Um, so it, it's been quite a mixed experience, of a very um, professionally very, very interesting, but kind of personally really quite terrifying. So it's, um, yeah, it's been a mixed few months, I guess. And yeah, I mean, it, it's, I, I, I can understand what you mean about that kind of, it's an exciting time and professionally, and you know, in that sense, it's kind of very, very interesting. And it's, uh, yeah, like a once in a lifetime event where epidemiologists, <laughs> epidemiology is like at the, the forefront of, of everything, right? Leading the news all the time. Um, but yeah, equally um, terrifying. I find epidemiologists are very, um, I don't know, we're used to talking, you know, with policy people and policymakers like to be able to take the headline story and, you know, this is, this is how it is. Whereas scientists and academics are much more, you know, we're much more aware of the caveats, aware, as you say, of the things that we don't know. Um, and know the kind of, I, I don't know, the confidence we can have in certain things. It's not so black and white. Um, so I, I guess it is a bit frightening to be in a place where the politicians and the decision makers are wanting to take something that's very uncertain and then make some pretty bold uh, moves with that. So, yeah, it's... Uh, well, and they have to, right? They don't have a choice. They have to make some decision and they have to take some action in response to all of this. And they're doing it with very little information about what will be best. Um, yeah, so it's uh, it has been very interesting and very um, exciting time to be an epidemiologist in an epidemic. It's quite unusual. Um, so um, actually, just a personal question: Are you involved in any of the modelling at all, or are you? More no, no. Um, so I'm I'm more of a methodologist. Um, I focus on basically running statistics on large data sets and trying to understand what we can learn from these data sets. So um, I'm not involved in any of the infectious disease modeling. I don't um, have any particular expertise in the models that they're using. So the things like the imperial model that you heard about at the beginning of the 
crisis. Um, I've not looked into it in detail and I, I don't know the specifics of what they're using for those. My interests more lie in um, if we're interested in something in the population or a particular um, feature of the population, how do we learn about it and what study designs can we use to understand it? That's, yeah, that's really interesting because I think everybody has since things like the imperial model came out and oxford have their model and uh this is talked about every day and there seems to be new data on cases and deaths and and the r rate and the case fatality rates and all these kind of terms that we're becoming familiar with and one of the things that's been quite interesting is um some of the studies that have come out and have suggested some kind of strange relationships right so there was the one about how smokers are are less likely to have severe cases of of COVID-19 and when this came out as someone has you know as a as a teenager and, and student had the odd cigarette I have to admit in my youth and um uh you know you hear this thing and you think oh oh that's interesting maybe I should uh get down the news agents and get a get a packet of fags and um uh but, ser but seriously thinking about that um that's something that you've written about recently about, as you described, you look into these methods, we want to know something about a population, but all of these studies are coming out with essentially observational data on samples that aren't, aren't random. Uh, and you've written about how this, these findings are pretty shaky because of, you know, in economics, Franz and I would talk about um, selection bias, about who's selected into the sample. And I think epidemiology, you would talk um, about collider bias or a special case of collider bias. Can you explain what that is and why it's a problem, why it is that smokers actually are unlikely to be um, better off. So collider bias is really a, spe a special case of selection bias, right? So selection bias I think is quite intuitive to people. You wanna know something about a population um, and you take a sample from that population. So a classic example of this is our political polls. If you get a representative sample from the population that's similar enough to the population, you can just sample a thousand people, two thousand people, and get a good idea of the level of support of different politicians within that population. However, if you don't take a representative sample and you don't take any steps to ensure that the sample that you've got is similar enough to the population, your sample is going to be skewed. So, for example, if you went out to um, I don't know, a university precinct and sampled a load of students, their political preferences are not going to be representative of the population. Now, similarly, it's pretty obvious that if you sample a load of young people or a load of healthy people, the rates of disease in that sample is going to be very different from your population. So this kind of introduces the idea of selection bias, that you need to get a representative sample from the population in order to learn about um, things like disease rates in a population, which is really important for this epidemic, right, to know how many people are actually having this disease. Um, but what's less obvious is that not only do you need a representative sample to get um, accurate estimates of disease rates, you also need to have some understanding of this selection into your study to get accurate estimates of association. So collider bias is a bias that occurs um, when individuals are selected into a study on two characteristics of interest. So it might be whether they were a smoker and whether they um, had COVID. So if people who are smokers are less likely to go into your study and if people who have had COVID are more likely to go into your study, then an association can be induced between those two variables in your sample that doesn't exist in the population. So it's really quite unlikely that smoking is going to protect against 
getting COVID. In fact, probably the opposite. But if we select our sample in a particular way um, that oversamples these um, groups, then we can induce associations in our sample that's spurious. And this might happen kind of automatically as part of our study design. For example, we might sample a load of people who turn up at a hospital. Well, they've turned up at a hospital for a reason, right? And one of those reasons might be because they're a smoker and because they've also got COVID. And that can induce these associations and lead to really quite misleading findings. And if you kind of look at a lot of the research that's been published very, very quickly in response to this crisis, um, a lot of the samples are not representative, they're not the perfect study design that we would like to learn about this epidemic. Um, and that's really what we've been trying to um, explain and highlight the reasons why we might get some of these slightly odd associations. I mean, I think that's very interesting. I mean, first of all, I should say to our uh, listening audience, uh, Matt's advice was more along Donald Trump here. <laughs> Smoking won't help you against COVID, <laughs> for sure. But uh, I guess more seriously, what you're saying is quite important there. You know, we, we, we've seen some important scientific studies being retracted in recent days. Me and Matt have talked, uh, I think early on actually in the COVID epidemic, have talked about the importance of data gathering and actually con the continuation of that and how long it takes somebody in our field, for example, on labor economics to actually get hold of the data and do any COVID analysis. You know, will be many, many quarters, if not years, post-COVID post crisis before we can actually get some serious inference of what happened in the labor market at this time. Um, I guess my question to you is here, there's obviously a lot of development going on uh, by academics and also the government in terms of developing apps to trace COVID. There's more than 30 countries in the world that are developing some sort of technology to analyze symptoms to help people to select themselves into some sort of COVID study. But what you're saying actually here is that a lot of this is kind of, you know, self-selection and may cause very strange associations in the ultimate data. So I guess my question here is, is bad data better than no data? What, what's your view on that? Um, potentially, I, I don't think data is not the problem here. Um, getting more data can often be very, very helpful but we need to both have really um, good data sets and judicious analysis of those data sets. So, you know, a, a data set is just a, a, a source of information, but what really matters is how we analyze those data sets and the inferences that we draw from those data sets. So having less than perfect data combined with a very uncritical analysis of those data sets is very potentially very very dangerous so to give you one example um, if you've got a data set that overestimates the number of cases in your population one thing that you will infer is that the infection fatality rate which is the proportion of people who die after getting this disease would be much lower so for example if you overestimate by a factor of two you can halve your infection fatality rate. What's the consequences of this? Well, you would infer that the disease is not as dangerous, right? Because fewer people, a small proportion of the people who are getting it are dying. And that's gonna have big implications for your response to the disease. Um, so getting these numbers right is really important. And one of the concerns that we've been raising is that some of these studies seem to be getting some of the basic numbers, like the number of cases of the disease in the population wrong by a factor of two or more. And that that's quite a big problem. And if that's being acknowledged, modeled and assessed, 
you can kind of account for it. So people sitting on um, the SAGE uh, Scientific Advisory Group, they can kind of read it, understand it, and take that into account when they're interpreting the evidence. But if scientists and academics are not being transparent enough about the limitations of their research and, and of their results, then that could lead to pretty big problems because you're kind of selling a and you're making a pitch about your research that's potentially misleading and potentially could be very damaging. And I think that's kind of where we started off a little bit, that kind of perfect storm of if you've got some analysis that is not so rigorous and the sample that's not brilliant, and then you're talking to policymakers who just want a simple message and to be able to then implement you know policy response it's uh yeah it's that kind of perfect storm of just the, the wrong things coming together um and i think I, I guess we need to be a bit um sympathetic i suppose uh, as you mentioned earlier to the government who are having to make these calls they've got to do something and you know the ons data is pretty good i think in the sense that as Fran said, we talked about this on, on the first kind of lockdown show about what you need to do is have representative samples and you need to be testing them repeatedly and just seeing, you know, what's the progression of this virus and understand them much more accurately what the uh, transmission rate is and what, what the um, frequency of, uh, of the diseases in the, in the population. I think they're getting that and they seem to be getting much more solid estimates. But the, the downside with that is the time that it takes a lot of time for this information to filter through. So you've got the government trying to make decisions, oh. always having this backward view. It's quite so tricky. It's quite, I mean, what the INS has done is quite astonishing. You know, they set up a study that's now published weekly over the course of a couple of months that is a representative sample. But the intuition of interpreting those results compared to other results are not going to be clear to a lot of people unless they've got training in statistics, right? Because you've got a much smaller sample, I think it's about 10,000 households. So the estimates are much less precise, but they're representative. So they should be much less biased. Um, but you're going to be comparing that to another study that might be from an app where you've got millions of participants. It's incredibly precise, but potentially very, very wrong. And unless you've got that understanding of statistics that it's better to have a smaller, less biased sample that's less um, precise but more accurate than to have a very large sample that's really quite misleading but very, very accurate. Um, unless you have that understanding and understand that intuition, I think it's kind of hard to the grass because you kind of think oh it's a massive sample it's probably probably okay um and i think even for quite experienced policymakers and um quite experienced academics that um that tension and that um contrast is really hard to interpret well i think yeah i mean hopefully and i i, I trust that the government has the statisticians with that understanding um to be able to take what is you know really great data as you say from the ons uh and in, you know use it interpret it in the right way um so we've had a we've had a bit of covid chat which is what we tend to do now uh because every, you know it's it's such a prominent policy issue and is going to be for some time um but that kind of leads on thinking about this sample and how you interpret the data uh to thinking about your work um as you described as a methodologist you know Franz and i as economists we're like uh like with epidemiologists we're always interested in understanding causal relationships between things uh because we want to be informing policymakers and making sure that the people who are making these decisions whether it's about health policy or, or labor market policy or whatever it is education uh that they're not just looking at associations or using slightly uh, imprecise data and, and, and drawing conclusions um, and we've talked before on policy matters about how we try and exploit 
some variation in the data, right? We never normally get a, a, a kind of controlled trial like they would in medicine, but we're looking often to exploit something that happens that's a bit random, like a law change that just affected some people and not others. And then we look at, okay, how did that impact their education or their health or whatever earnings or whatever it is? Um, so this Mendelian randomization that Franz mentioned at the beginning, this is something that I know economists are starting to be very interested in, um, as it is a way in which epidemiologists are doing the same sort of thing, exploiting some naturally occurring variation to try and understand causal relationships. Um, and I've been working I've been working on this a little bit with epidemiologists, including yourself, Neil. I have to have full disclosure on this. Um, and uh, I tried to explain this a little bit in a previous episode of Policy Matters about how Mendelian randomization works, but that was very much a case of an economist explaining epidemiology. Um, and so I've wanted to get you on to come and do the job properly. So uh, can you just give us a, a, an understanding of the basics of this Mendelian randomization? Okay, so Mendelian randomization is an approach that uses um, a natural experiment that is encoded in our DNA. I think um, everyone probably knows that our, we inherit our DNA from our parents. And across our genome, there are maybe 40 million um, genetic variants that differ across individuals um, in the population, actually considerably more than that, but we focus on the ones that are relatively common. Um, we now kind of know um, individual genetic variants that associate with different characteristics. So we know um, genetic variants associated with having slightly higher BMI or being slightly taller or staying slightly longer in school. Now, what's really nice about genetic variants is that we know that at conception, you've got a 50-50 chance of inheriting your um, mother or your father's genetic variant at each point. They, they've got two alleles and you inherit one of your mother's and one of your father's at each point of variation in the genome. And so conditional on your parents' genetics, uh, you've got a perfect experiment now. So it's perfectly randomized. And this is incredibly unusual to have such a um, ex experiment particularly for the traits that we might be interested in. There's very few other ways that you can um, get reliable um, estimates of things like BMI. And what we can do is we can follow um, and look up genetic variants in, across different populations and see how they associate with other outcomes. So we might take the genetic variants that we know associate with BMI and investigate how they associate with educational attainment um, to test whether BMI has a causal effect on educational attainment. Um, and one of the really interesting things that we've managed to find is that if you look at the genetic variants, if you just look across the population, um, they, genetic variants associated with BMI do associate with educational outcomes, which naively you might think, oh, that implies there's cause between these two factors. But we've gone further to use samples of siblings where um, we're able to control for family level differences between um, individuals. And you can see all of those um, differences disappear completely, suggesting that there's very, very unlikely to be an effect of BMI on education. So let me just ask you a question here, because I've been looking into this a little bit and, and you know, the methodology here is similar to what economists use. Um, and, you know, it's really interesting like you said, that there is this kind of at birth, at conception, there's this random experiment where, you know, some of us are born with a certain set of genes. 
that make us more likely to do something, right? And that, that, that's just there. That's it, you know, can't be changed. And that can, can then be used for some sort of inference in a statistical setting. <laughs> can't say my essays today. So, um, but I guess my question is, and this is very much from a layman perspective as somebody who doesn't know a lot about medicine or epidemiology, how on earth do you know about these relationships between the genes and these, I guess, what they're called biomarkers in the literature? So where, where exactly does that come from? So we've, over the last maybe 15 years, um, there's been a series of very large studies where genetic epidemiologists have collected together all the data that's available, where you've got a study that's got information on genetics and information on your trait of interest, your biomarker, BMI, um, your cholesterol level, your height, um, whatever. Um, and they'll put it all together. They'll estimate the association between up to 40 million genetic variants and that trait, say BMI, and then they'll combine it all together using meta-analysis. And these studies are enormous. You know, they have like um, over a, a million people is common for these studies. And because everyone's got the same DNA underlying it, you can combine it together very, very easily. And you've kind of got a genetic backbone to these studies that allow you to combine studies from uh, Japan with studies from America to European studies. And you can, you can combine them all together and estimate these associations because you're doing 40 million, effectively 40 million linear regressions or 40 million logistic regressions. And you're, you're doing a lot of statistical tests and you have to account for the effective number of tests that you're doing. The 40 million genetic variants are not independent. So they correlate somewhat across the genome and um, we uh, statistical geneticists have kind of come up with a, um, a threshold a statistical testing threshold of five times ten to the minus eight um, okay rather than, okay rather than to the usual I was wondering exactly about that so it seems much more kind of almost like the 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 guys in physics that are using statistical tests that are just so much more precise than kind of what economists and social scientists are using. You know, I mean, it, it depends how you look at it because you're, you're doing mm. so many more tests, right? Mm. So it, it, the, the purposes of these statistics is very, very different. So because we're doing 40 million tests, we reckon that there are, I think it's approximately a million independent um, variants across the genome. If you kind of take out all the correlated variants. So that's how you end up with this to, times eight to the minus five um, and they're also very careful to replicate their analysis so you find it in one study and they'll typically have a replication sample where they then look up those genetic variants and then say yep even in a completely separate study we're replicating most of these findings so it is quite a systematic approach for identifying these genetic variants so we can be pretty confident that they do associate yeah so that five times 10 to minus eight this is basically saying there's a lot of zeros after the point <laughs> not point no 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 and that is the you know the likelihood that this is just random when you've looked at 40 million people you found this association uh this is the likelihood that you would get that kind of relationship by chance if there really wasn't a relationship so we essentially it's just saying we can be really confident that actually we've we found something that really does associate with the with whether it's bmi or, or education or whatever it is yeah, and the, the key word there is associate because then you need to work out why do they associate, what's the factors that mediate these relationships, and is there anything else that could explain them? So you, um, all of the studies that I've described in the um, that are called genome-wide association studies, they're all using unrelated individuals. So there are 
some factors that can induce associations between genetic variants and some phenotypes and that's where studying families becomes really really important okay so um very interesting and, and that answered a big question i had actually so now taking this forward into a kind of an applied setting and i guess what we talk about policy a lot uh You've done quite a lot of work on this, uh, looking at um, how various factors affect other things, such as health outcomes. Uh, one of the things you've looked on is um, the effect of intelligence on health. So I think that's quite an interesting starter. I've looked at some economic studies that looked at kind of education and intelligence on health, but nothing that's used this kind of analysis. So what have you found? So what we did was um, we we're interested in uh, the relative effects of um, intelligence and cognition and um, educational attainment. So kind of a classic um, question from the literature is that we see these associations between staying in school for longer and better health outcomes, but it's not clear if they're causal. One of the key mechanisms and the key differences between individuals who stay in school longer and those who leave earlier is that typically those who stay in school longer um, score higher on um, tests for cognitive ability. So it's unclear if it's the underlying ability or if it's something to do with schooling. So what we did to investigate this was we took genetic variants that associate with, that were identified to associate with um, intelligence and some genetic variants that were um, identified to associate with educational attainment. Now, it's important to note that these are overlapping, right? These are the same variants. There aren't any variants that we know of that just pick out the effects of intelligence but don't influence educational attainment. It's kind of obvious when you think about it. That <laughs> yeah, I, I think it, it would be. <laughs> it, would be, it would be kind of odd if there were variants like that. But um, with... Um, some of the methods that we're using you can identify the effects the independent effects of intelligence and education if you've got a set of genetic markers that although they both predict both intelligence and education they predict them to different extents so some have slightly more influence on intelligence some have slightly more influence on educational attainment and we can use that to estimate the effects of both of them and what's really interesting is you get some quite um distinct results depending on the health outcomes that you're looking at so when we're looking at things like um bmi and smoking it really looks like um most of the direct effect of this is really being mediated by educational attainment, that it's something to do with staying in school for longer that's influencing these outcomes. But for other outcomes, like Alzheimer's disease, it really looks like it's something to do with intelligence and really there's not much evidence of an effect of educational attainment at all, which is really um, quite interesting and quite surprising. Um, so we're kind of still working through these results and trying to get to the bottom of um, these differences, but it, it is quite a, um unusual and useful technique for getting those estimates. So actually on that Alzheimer's you mentioned, so you hear people talking about, you know, use it or lose it um, when you, as you're getting older, you know, keep doing cognitive things, keep up your kind of cognitive skills, if I can put it like that. Um, so you've, this is something you've directly looked at and there's, so there is something there that um, maybe if we keep our cognitive skills up, there's some relationship between cognitive skills and Alzheimer's. Potentially. I mean, this is where we've got to be really cautious, right? Because what we're kind of saying is that it looks like people who um, score better on these cognitive tests are less likely to develop Alzheimer's later in life. Um, also, the individuals who remain in school for longer are less likely to um, develop Alzheimer's later in life. But it's kind of difficult to go from that to directly to things like um, brain training or um, 
kind of cognitively engaging activities for older people to know whether that would have any influence because we don't know the mechanisms that are in between these factors and actually getting the disease so there's a lot of questions there and i think it's it's probably it's definitely way too soon to say this is definitive proof of this intervention would affect your risk of alzheimer's i mean alzheimer's is um one of the hardest diseases to study i mean there have been I think 99% of drugs developed for Alzheimer's have failed. Um, so, and we don't have any effective treatments for it at the moment. So it's really, um, if you want to have a prior about anything, any intervention affecting Alzheimer's, your prior should be pretty strong, but it probably doesn't. So, um, okay. So, so I think uh, we can all put our Sudoku pads away. I was going to say that same, you know. Don't this, rush uh, out to the shops and buy Sudoku games <laughs> like toilet paper. Well, I mean, <laughs> it's, it's one of these things that we don't know, right? So um, we've got no idea if it would. Maybe it does. Maybe it doesn't. Yeah. But I mean, if you if you want a perfect study designed for answering that, you've got to randomize people at age, what, probably 35 um to do sudoku for the rest of their life and see whether it makes a difference now that's going to be a incredibly expensive and b quite hard i don't know how many people we could convince to uh it's oh, going to be tricky. i'm not one of those sorry <laughs> well, i guess the trickiness would be randomizing i mean people like matt you know that they, they want to do their sudoku every day i right? do i do i do like a sudoku although i find them very frustrating uh <laughs> if they're too difficult i can do quite hard but you know if they're too hard i just end up screwing them up and throwing them in the bin so uh yeah so that's not i'm probably not the best example um but actually i am an example of something else that you've uh, looked at and i think is really neat and a really good um example of mr the mendelian randomization technique and that is looking at the relationship between education and uh, short-sightedness so um this is something that we observe right um a lot or has been observed that Educated people are more likely to wear glasses. And in, in fact, uh, if we look around the screens here, um, I'm wearing glasses, Neil's wearing glasses, Franz is wearing glasses. So, you know, this is not a perfect sample, but we've got three people who are educated to a certain degree and we're all wearing glasses. So the question is, you know, you wonder, okay, well, is it that education affects your eyesight or is it that people with poorer eyesight are more likely to get education? Um, and yeah, I mean, I didn't wear glasses until I was 21. And um, I was sure it was to do with studying. I finished my degree. I realized that I could not I'd look up for my exam paper and I couldn't see the clock at the front of the uh, exam hall. I even started one exam. I hope no examiners are listening. Um, I started one exam because I thought the time was right. And then I got about three or four minutes in and they said, OK, you can turn your papers over now. Right. And so this, this was my experience of education and short sightedness. Um, so, yeah, I was very interested. That you look so what you're saying is because you're short-sighted you get more time in exams and you, you do better i see well it's, yeah something we didn't like consider that, that one you, you should have looked into that but yeah what what did you actually find in your real life so, study? so um yeah this is i think it's a really intuitive example because you can um imagine we can get a load of genetic variants that associate with educational attainment how long people remain in school so they're you know there are 72 of those uh, there are a few genetic variants that also affect your um how short-sighted you are so First of all, we looked up um, the genetic variants associated with education and do they associate with um, short-sightedness in the population? And we found, yes, they do. So individuals with more of these genetic variants that predispose them to staying in school more likely to be short-sighted. What's really nice is we can do the opposite direction. We can look up those short-sightedness variants that just um, 
by chance, some people inherit these things and it means they're more likely to be short-sighted. Um, and look at how they associate with educational attainment. And we found there was um, a completely, there was very little evidence of an association. And not only was there very little evidence of an association, this, uh, these estimates were really precise. So they're really precise at zero. Um, it's not that there's a small effect, it's just the effect of his there would be absolutely minuscule. And it's not consistent with the association we see between short-sightedness and education. And this is very strong evidence that the relationship goes from educational attainment to short-sightedness and not the other way around. Um, and I don't know of any other um, study design that would allow you to investigate um, that particular relationship. It's got quite a lot of um, policy relevance, particularly for um, a number of countries that have quite substantially increased the length of educational attainment. So countries around um, East Asia have um, experienced huge increases in myopia over recent decades as children have spent more time in education. And it actually leads to quite severe side effects. And it's um, there are potentially things that we could do to help reduce those rates of myopia or change the way that we educate kids in order to help protect their eyesight. And that's something that um, could potentially be um, mitigated for. I guess the other side of it is that it looks like interventions we have for eyesight, you know, glasses work and they enable people to get educated. So that, that side of things we're doing well, but the reverse direction is something that we needs more work and could be solved potentially. Well, I think that's super interesting. I mean, and I, I've never really thought about it as much as Matt did, I must say. But <laughs> now that we are thinking about it, I think, I mean, obviously we have the same thing going on in the UK. Raising of the participation age has increased. The university participation rate is an all-time high. So, you know, there's interesting questions here about, you know, myopia developing in the UK population as well going forward. But I should say, like you said, the intervention is good and glasses do make you look much prettier. Uh, so, <laughs> well, we, we can all agree on that. But I think, uh, I mean, the policy uh, relevance, as you said, Nick, I was just really surprised at the difference, you know, in the UK from leaving school at 16 to leaving school at 21, you know, leaving education, so going to university could be enough, you know, the effect on your eyesight could be enough to make you need glasses for driving, which is like, to me, it seems like a huge effect that we just, until your paper, I never really, you know, well, obviously I had thought about it, but I never really thought about the kind of the bigger picture of, of that as a factor. Yeah, so it's really, it, um, needing glasses is, you know, bad. Well, it'd be better if we didn't have to use them, but it's, um, there are other consequences of it. Um, again, this is not uh, something that I'm a complete expert in. So um, I thought it was, wasn't it the um, things like retinal detachments as well? um that are also associated with um yes they are i can i'm an expert on that as well because i've had a retinal detachment so i can tell you yeah that, yeah, um, yeah. <laughs> this, this is playing playing to all my subject individual strengths but you, um yeah i think that is associated but with you must be super well. smart <laughs> i should so, be. yeah yeah you'd think you'd think you tell my boss <laughs> <laughs> but yeah so th there are um quite serious side effects of it as well that are um potentially associated with really quite bad outcomes. They're much rarer, of course, but um, yeah, there are consequences there that would be good if um, we could avoid. If it was something as simple as, oh, it's just that you're keeping them inside for too long and they're not getting enough um, vitamin D free sunlight, for example, um, we could help prevent this. Um, but yeah, at the moment, we don't know exactly what's causing it. So uh, uh, yeah, so that was going to be my next it. question. Is there any kind of thought you have on why that is exactly? Is it because, you know, there's so much reading and the print is too small or now we're looking at our iPads too much or like you said, vitamin B? 
any any so it's absolutely not ipads so the sample that we were looking at was from the, they were born between the kind of 30s and 70s mm -hmm. um so they were going to school in um way before ipads and way before computers in fact so it's nothing to do with modern technology um as far as we know uh more than that again it's something that we need to find out more about um there are hypotheses to do with, I believe there are hypotheses to do with vitamin D, although again, it's, I want to check that before saying it with any certainty. Um, and there could be many other things that we're not considering. Um, so it could just be um, the process of looking too focused at too short a distance and not using your distance vision. Um, but um, we don't know at present. And just, I want to come back to something you mentioned earlier about a lot of these studies you're using just, you know, unrelated individuals and you're looking at their, uh, genetic code, but you, you briefly mentioned that you'd also been looking at uh, families, right? So where you've got genetic information on the parents uh, and then at least, you know, one child. So you can deal with some of these things because as you mentioned, there's, you know, there are issues that if, you know, it's random, which um, variant you get from, you know, you could 50-50 chance from each parent, but you need, you know, if there are things that in, influence education, then you need your parents, at least one of them to have it, to have for you to have any chance of getting it right and so if we can't control for the kind of backgrounds of the parents then we might be just picking up effects of your of your parents right so tell me more about this within family because that seems to solve the problems but it sounded like actually you find that in a lot of cases it just leads to um the things we thought we knew it turns out that was just picking up some family effects yeah so there are really three sources of family effects that we're concerned about in genetic studies. So the first would be um, that there are differences across a country. So you might think about um, genetic variants that are more common um, in Scotland are going to be associated with drinking iron brew. Um, they're also going to be associated with um, potentially having worse health because we know that lots of health outcomes are worse um, in Scottish populations. So th that isn't a Good reason to infer that iron brew causes um, heart attacks, for example, right? Or, just or, any, other, or any other drinks from any company whatsoever. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah, we, yeah. We should, be, we clear. Just, we should be clear about that. <laughs> we're not. I did actually try and get this in an academic paper, but my boss wouldn't let me include that as an example. I thought that, that would, apparently, say, his reasoning was that. So everyone else around the world will have no clue what iron brew is. Or what <laughs> That's true. Of it. That and true. everyone in Scotland will presume that everybody drinks iron brew, so they will have no clue about it either. So it was just, a, as far as he was concerned, a terrible example. But, you know. Okay. Um, but, uh, yeah, so the other source of um, variation is um, assortative mating. So we don't reproduce at random. We more or less carefully pick up partners and one of the things that um, people match on is the amount of education that we've got so if you look at the correlation between mother's and father's education it's pretty high um, so this means that the if your mother has more genetic variants associated with education your father is also likely to have, have more of them so it's not random who your parents are and it's not random how many education variants they have so you kind of need to have some model that will take into account of that. There are two ways. Um, oh, and the final one is if your parents affect you. So if your parents' education affects your outcome, for example, how much education you get or your BMI or any other outcome you are interested in, um, 
that's a source of variation that's not through your genetics. And, could, um, and because your genetics associates with your parents' genetics, again, we need to control for this or account for this in our models. So there are two ways you can do it. You can either use, well, there are at least two ways you can do it. You can either use samples of siblings, and because siblings have the same parents, um, we know that they're effectively drawing their genetic variants from the same lottery. They've got the same distribution. Their parents has the same distribution of genetic variants. So if we compare any differences in um, genetics between siblings and associate that with the differences in their outcome, that should control for any of those familial effects. Similarly, if you look at samples of trios where you've got the mother, father, and the offspring genotype, you know their genetic variants. Again, you can directly control for the parents' genetics, and that eliminates these sources of um, bias in those estimates, which is really quite neat. And for yeah, for some examples like um, BMI and height, height is a really weird one. So why would you expect height to affect educational attainment? I mean, it, the timing of it just doesn't doesn't really work particularly well and doesn't make a lot of sense. But there have been a huge number of papers on it investigating it. And if you look at samples of unrelated individuals without using families, you get these estimates from genetics that suggest that height affects education. But as soon as you control for um, parents' genetics or use these samples of siblings, the estimates just completely go away, um, suggesting that there's very, very unlikely to be an effect of height on educational attainment. Yeah, I think Matt and I and many of us can agree that parents are incredibly annoying uh, from a statistical sense. Uh, they are always in the in our data driving things that we can't see. So um, not yes, just the Matt. statistical sense, I'd say. But yeah, no, <laughs> yeah. I, I probably shouldn't say that. But yeah, <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Yes, yeah, the dangers of parents. Anyway, anyway, uh, Neil. Uh, we've discussed a lot. I've, lot. I've actually got lots more questions. You had this really interesting paper on uh, alcohol and kind of cohabitation and your, your, your spouse. But uh, I, I am aware of the time a little bit. So just before we finish up, I'd like to ask you, is there anything that you're working on at the moment that gets you really excited? Uh, hopefully academic work. <laughs> um, yeah so the all of the stuff with using samples of related individuals is really exciting i mean we've um we're currently in the middle of uh recruiting all of the studies around the world that has samples of siblings and samples of mother father offspring trios uh to run what are called genome-wide association studies on them and this is getting some really interesting results comparing the results using this method to other methods that haven't used uh, samples of families um, and I think it'll be very very exciting to get those results and get them published because uh, it's a much much more robust method. That's that's very cool and we look forward to uh, seeing more of that and finding these results and again we've got all these pages of questions we'd like to talk to you about so maybe another time we will um, <laughs> we'll bring you back but one thing what we've been doing you know we always ask people uh, about you know policy and so uh, if we parachuted you into government, Neil, right, and say we plunked you, you're there as the chief medical officer or the chief scientific officer, and you're standing next to Boris Johnson uh, or whoever it is doing one of the daily briefings at the moment, what would be the, the key message you'd be wanting to get out there? Apart from don't drink iron brew and, or, or, or other fizzy carbonated drinks. Don't drink iron brew. Don't tell the population to do one thing and then go visit Durham. That's, that's very unwise. Um, okay. Otherwise, the importance of getting good data to understand this epidemic, getting valid random samples, getting it quickly, and making sure that the samples are big enough so that we can actually understand 
um, what's happening with this disease and where it's going. I mean, over the next um, couple of months, all the discussion is going to be about what's happening. Is it going up? Is it going down? And that's a question of data and information. And if we haven't got the studies to get valid estimates of the number of cases in the population, we, we can't. We can't know what's happening, so we can't know whether the disease is increasing or decreasing. Um, and so those random samples are really, really important. Brilliant. Thank you, Neil. I think we'll all ag we can all agree on the importance of like good quality data and analysis for for policymakers. Uh, More so money think, to data scientists. We we hear it. I think that is the take home message uh, that we want to get out there. But um, I'd, uh, I'd be happy with more money to the ONS. They they do a great job there. So. Um, they they do they do okay brilliant thank you neil it's been really really interesting and we'll definitely talk to you again sometime awesome thanks you've been listening to policy matters my name is franz borsha and i'm matt dixon and we'll be back soon with more